When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 93, The Fury of a Prince. When news broke in England that Llewellyn had taken the four cantrips, Henry III expressed disappointment with the now Lord of Snowdon, but Edward was said by Matthew Paris to be apoplectic with rage, something not surprising considering what he would go on later in life to do. Edward was convinced he needed to take an army and crush Gwyneth's ambitions before they began. He officially had had enough, and he wanted to finish the Welsh off before they got going. Paris suggested that Edward wanted to hunt them to their extermination, in quotes. Edward, unlike his father, was not prepared to compromise, not prepared to treat with the enemy, but rather his first response was to try and crush them, utterly defeat them. However, reality would set in very quickly. First, in the midst of a winter, the weather turned on the English, and Wales was extremely wet. No surprise there if you've ever been to Wales in the wintertime. And likely that made routes through North Wales very difficult. You must imagine the trails and roads and other things were a lot less clear than they were today. Even the Roman roads at this point were probably pockmarked little patches rather than full-on roads especially into Wales, and most of the trails, because that's what they would be, would be mud-covered and slick and wet and narrow, and all of those fun things that come about when you're going into these kind of hilly areas. And obviously that would make it difficult. And it's also different from today because there was a lot of steep hills to climb, so there was areas just west of Chester, for example, where there would be a recipe for problems for horses if the, in an area that's rife for ambushes. Also likely why Llewellyn moved into the area in November of 1256. Edward spent time and treasure trying to get his land back, but all of that failed because there was no way to get his troops into Wales to take on Llewellyn. And because of that, Llewellyn was able to use that to his advantage. With plans of constant division and infighting thwarting Henry in Gwyneth, and the ease of which Llewellyn took his Edward's recently given lands, it was no doubt who had got the better in this exchange. Llewellyn ap Griffith was now the head of this ancient kingdom in full, not just in ideal. As 1257 dawned, Llewellyn continued to press forward. Now was not the time to pause. Poets, bards, and writers at this point looked at Llewellyn as supremely set to rule the land. His moves this year would set him on a path to confront the crown prince and create the last best hope for Welsh independence at this point. Conversely, one could argue that Llewellyn set up the path of his own destruction by setting a volatile crown prince up as an enemy and then rubbing his nose in it by taking advantage of King Henry. 
For Edward, this must have rankled greatly. Even the English remarked that Llewellyn's ability to unite the native rulers under his leadership, which must have gone over really well in London, they were very positive and very complimentary. Llewellyn was not one to wait around, either. Within a month of taking the four cantreths, he invaded Powys Fadog, northern Powys, in other words, sending its ruler, Griffith ap Madog, to the English for protection. While we don't know what fully happened, most chroniclers were decidedly mum on the subject, we do know that Griffith was given lands and compensation in England, which likely boded ill for his ability to get his land back. But at the heart of the problem Flewellyn had for himself was the reality that Gwyneth, as it rose, the interpretation appeared to be that it was a little too big of a casting of shadows on its neighbors. Simple feudal overload ship would never be enough. Too often the Welsh lords fought for power, and giving that up simply because it may have made sense did not seem to be something the Welsh were prepared to do forever. Much like during most of the Anglo-Saxon period, there were never enough willingness to follow one line or one descendancy amongst the various kingdoms. And this will continue to be a situation that we will cover, and we have covered in the past. Marianoneth, the cantor of south of Gwyneth, fell to, next to Llewellyn, putting all of the southern powers in his line of sight. But Llewellyn was concentrating on bigger fish, as he instead continued south and entered Doithbarth, meeting with his ally, Merduth ap Rieskrig. Uh, Merduth was an ally of Llewellyn's uncle David, and even before that, his going back to 1246 when they actually treated with Henry and and uh, rejoined the fold, so to speak. Before that, Meredith's father, Rieskrig, was a strong supporter of Llewellyn's grandfather, so the ties were there from House Dinfor, and that tie was important to them. Owen, Llewellyn's older brother, had signed a pact with Meredith in 1251. Some suggest that this made have been something that was planned by Llewellyn himself. But even if that wasn't, it's not hard to imagine that Meredith changing allegiances when he saw the power of Llewellyn over the last year, it becomes a very easy and convenient thing to explain. Of course, having a strong ally while fighting a dynastic struggle against your brothers and nephews may have been another factor in why Meredith changed his alliances and why he needed Llewellyn's help. Rhys Feichan, his nephew, had become allied with the English and turned on his uncle, taking much of his land away from him. Stephen Bazan, Prince Edward's officer in the southwest Wales, was claimed to have been enlisted by Rhys to remove Merdoth from Ystrad Toei in the September of 1256. This would practically put Meredith into the hands of Llewellyn, and of course, Llewellyn would take advantage of that. Early in 1257, Llewellyn marched into Doithbarth with Meredith, and joined by, confusingly enough, another Meredith, Meredith ap Owen, who brought Carrig Digion into the full control of Llewellyn. They actually signed a pact on December 5th of 1256, allying together against all others in Morfa Maur, 
The problem, of course, with that is that this would come back to haunt Llewellyn later, and we'll talk about that probably in the next episode. In the early part of the new year, the Allies grab back Yestad Thawi almost immediately, controlling an important area northeast of Carmarthen and within striking distance of both Llanethli and, of course, farther along Swansea. Along with this attack to the south, Llewellyn marched east, attacking Powys Winwin, or Southern Powys, as we might call it. Llewellyn this time decided to attack first and talk later, as he had tried before to negotiate. This time he didn't bother. He knew that Griffith ap Gwenwinwin had no love lost for him and certainly remained loyal to the English crown. In fact, his kingdom would be one of the few that remained loyal to Edward later on. With the English coming to his rescue, Griffith was able to push back as Lord John Lestrange and John Fitzalan came to rescue Southern Powys from the might of Llewellyn's armies. However, it didn't go quite to their plan, as according to Welsh chroniclers, they failed to defeat Llewellyn, who took control of most of Southern Powys, leaving Griffith the only Welsh pool, burning mass with its intact castle in the wake of the assault. Meanwhile, Llewellyn pressed his advantage all through the winter and into the early spring of 1257, taking lands from the marcher lords, including Kidwelly, for example, and continuing to reward the native lords that were flocking to his banner. In short, Llewellyn must have been driving the English crazy. This meant that the crown was not happy, needless to say. The defeats of the winter of 1256-57 must have left a bad taste in their mouth, and Edward's men were determined to move quickly to put a stop to this forward progress. And unlike when they were thwarted in the Fort Cantrifts, it was now spring and weather was much better for the troops to move in the southwest. The hope was to stop the Doithbarth campaign before Llewellyn could stack up any more successes. Edward must have been determined to strike back because the territories that the English were losing in Wales were predominantly those given to him. The four cantrips and much of Carmarthen and Cardigan were his. They were, of course, gifts from his father, not something he'd won for himself, but knowing Edward, this probably made him furious. This was not a prince of courtly manners and judicial judgment. This was the future Hammer of the Scots, a man so vain it was said that he asked for his corpse to be brought into the fight in Scotland so as to carry the English to victory. Even as a young man, chroniclers gave the impression that he was a bully, a thug, and not someone who took slight defeats graciously. He would want revenge. For the marcher lords, the seriousness of the situation with Llewellyn had not been lost on them either. Within a few months, this man, who had ruled a shared part of a reduced and ridiculed kingdom, was now starting to threaten their possessions. From Swansea to Chester, no area in the march was safe. Llewellyn and his allies, by February, were burning Swansea Castle, taking Bulleth and generally punishing the English in the southwest at will. This would create an issue of its own for it, of course. Roger Mortimer, Humphrey de Bohane, Patrick de Chaworth, and William de Valence all became active in the defense of their lands from the Welsh. Roger Mortimer would become a constant thorn in the side of Llewellyn after this time. But, at the same time, Welsh people both for and against Llewellyn started to come over to his camp. Nothing works better than success at convincing anyone to get on board. 
Meanwhile, Edward was struggling to get money to fund his campaign, buy the mercenaries needed to counter the Welsh, and as Matthew Paris, our Norman chronicler, noted, the Welsh patriotism was becoming an issue for the Normans like nothing else before it. Taken as a historical example, this should have been a moment for Edward to learn a lesson in leadership, because almost the same thing happened 40 years later in Scotland. In some ways, the Welsh example would teach Edward all the wrong lessons, and this moment was likely the reason why Llewellyn eventually fails. But more on that another time. Llewellyn, playing a very particular political game, claims that he was not aiming to take on King Henry, his liege lord, but rather Edward, the prince. It was a very well-parsed bit of fantasy, but apparently enough of a split to give Henry pause from intervening. During the winters of 1257, he tried to negotiate his way into some sort of agreement with Llewellyn. Obviously, Llewellyn was having none of it, as politely as possible. At the end of Easter, 1257, after once more refusing Henry's offers of settlement, Llewellyn returned to the field once more and carried on campaigning. He was very shrewd and knew well his opposition, and he knew they were in trouble. He warned Richard of Cornwall, in fact, that the previous treaties were now untenable, that he would not be stopping his aggression while the king continued to demand the previous status quo. In fact, the king went so far as to say, give the four cantrips back, which was a laughable suggestion. It all came to a head at the end of May in 1257 and the beginning of June, when the English lords decided that they had enough force to take Dinfrir Castle, intimidate the locals, and pillage the area and the local population back into the English fold. It was also an attempt to break one of Llewellyn's key allies, Merdith Apris Grig. By putting Rhys Vaichan back on his lands and re-establishing the English vassal in the south, they thought to break the back of the main force of Welsh resistance in the south. Stephen Bazon, who had failed to stop Meredith almost a year ago, was said to have planned a new offensive to take the fight to the Welsh. So it was that he now led a new campaign to take Ystrad Tui. On May 31st, Bazon and his army left Camarthen, arriving in the area around Llandilio Faur, where they camped for the night. It was a mistake. Meredith's Ap Owen and Ap Rhys, arrived with their forces and attacked at night. The battle carried on into the day as the Welsh arrows and lances hit the English lines, which had been harassed over the night. It was considered to be utter chaos for the English. Now, when we talk about this battle, you can't picture it as a straight-up one line against another charging valiantly with shields and swords drawn. You have to think of this more like a, a, an actual chaotic battle that would take place where people would just be swinging wildly and not everybody would be armored and a lot of things would be quite chaotic and of course the english had more money more resources so they'd have more knights and and more men at arms than the welsh would but the welsh had the advantage of knowing the territory being able to move stealthily it seems at least in this case and be able to attack at night confident that they wouldn't hit their own allies in the process um, this, of course, as I said, led to a battle which took all day, or at least took most of the day. Eventually, the battle died down, and the two sides probably decided to split apart again. Uh, 
And so even as they stopped, the English army realized they were stuck and were unable to make their attack on Dunthru. They stopped after a time and both sides seemingly ran out of steam, as I said. And the attack and defense both died down. In the middle of this fiasco, at some stage, Rhys Vaichan, seeing that things were doomed, switched sides, making his way to Dinfur Castle to uh, join up with Llewellyn, which would create issues later, needless to say. Um, the English prepared for the second day of battle, only to find that the Welsh were even more fierce, and according to the chroniclers, they finally conceded that they could not actually take the castle, and then tried to make their way to Cardigan. From a strategic perspective, that would make sense. That's where supplies were being brought in from Ireland. That's where the English army probably would be safest. Uh, but as the army tried to take a strategic withdrawal, it lost its supplies. They were actually, in some cases, said to have been taken by the Welsh, which one can imagine did not make the paid mercenaries very happy because that's part of the pay is your food supply. Then at Kimrau... <clears throat> They were once again attacked at night, and this went on into the late morning, and by midday the battle had heated up, and finally the English broke for good. Bazan was killed, and many of his forces died. The estimates range from one to 3,000 Englishmen were killed, or at least those on the English side, with the rest actually fleeing into chaos. This time the English were firmly defeated, and according to the chronicler, the Welsh had 3,000 deaths. Now were those Welsh part of the English side, part of the Welsh side? They're not clear on that. But this Battle of Cadfan was considered to be one of the greatest victories for Llewellyn during this time period. Llewellyn, who may or may not have been at this battle, as the chroniclers have debated this, and unfortunately we don't have total assurity, um, had won a massive victory and had created uh, a great success for his possible ascension as Prince of Wales. However, he had a new problem. What do you do with Rhys and Marduth? They're not obviously going to reconcile easily, and there's going to be more trouble if you want Rhys kept out of the hands of the English. So there are claims that he created a reconciliation between the warring relatives, but that seems hardly likely. In fact, it appears that it was the first crack that was likely created between the Allies, as Meredith did not fight this hard with this many battles against the English, only to have his nephew be given priority or given a place by his liege lord. Certainly not what he was looking for, and definitely not that this same nephew would be given some of that property back that they had fought for. As Henry would find out next year, testy barons can be a bit of an issue for you long term. For the Norman chroniclers such as Matthew Paris, Llewellyn stood in stark contrast from Prince Edward. The image of a man who was fully able to defend his realm, create alliances, and deal justly. He was basically everything Edward was not, which was kind of the point. In a way, the Welsh were being used by Paris as an example, much like how Tacitus used them in the past to call his own side to repent of their lack of strength and their weakness in the face of a people who actually had something to fight for. And that 
aspect is something, of course, you're going to do when you're fighting against someone else. Think of it a little bit, I guess, if you want to put it into a modern parlance, is the American viewpoint on Vietnam and specifically the Viet Cong and how their perspectives changed over time. Obviously, amongst some people, the Viet Cong were freedom fighters. Amongst other people, they were, you know, communists who were trying to destroy a democratic society. We can all, and I'm not getting into a political debate about that. It's just that's the different perspectives. Well, similarly, you'd have different perspectives here. Obviously, you've got people like Edward who's not looking at the Welsh and going, gee, they're just freedom fighters just fighting for their land. No, he would think of them as as terrible usurpers that had stolen his land and killed his people and certainly would not look kindly on them. And I don't think Henry III did either. Let's be absolutely clear on this. And the comparison to Llewellyn probably didn't sit very well with Edward. As leaders of this day and age, the young prince was probably not very impressed. Bad press is not something Edward would have enjoyed, and this year of defeats would have done little to quell his desire to get revenge on Llewellyn. And at the end of the day, I would hazard a guess that this tracking of his battles and losses and money spent all to try and defeat the Welsh while being more or less having his hands tied behind his back by his father would have sat ill with someone whose first intent and first thought is to go and bully and go and destroy anybody who opposed him and certainly that seems to be the lesson he took from these losses. It wasn't a lesson of humility. It was a lesson of, I just have to hit him that much harder next time. And certainly we'll be talking a lot about that in later years. So with that, I'd just like to say thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for uh, being a part of this and uh as we are very close to the Christmas season when this episode goes out. I wish you all happy holidays. I hope you have a great uh, season. And uh, I hope everything goes well for you in the new year. And I hope 2019 is an amazing one for you. Until next time, everyone, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast gmail.com, on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And you can follow everything I do at LinsteadDM on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. And until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.